There's an old biblical story, one many have probably heard before. It's the story of Lot's wife. In the Old Testament, it tells of two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, set to be destroyed by God's wrath after years of sin and decadence. But Abraham pleads with God, if there's a single good person there, he says, you must find them and spare them. They find Lot, a resident of Sodom, who they determine to be the city's one good man. They tell him that he, his wife, and his daughters may leave the city, but they must move quickly, for destruction is imminent. As the family reached the desert, the rumble of the city's demise booms out from behind them. Unable to help herself, and against God's orders, Lot's wife looks back at the blast and becomes a pillar of salt. In the Bible, it's a lesson on following the Word of God, even if you don't understand it. It's about having faith. But what if the Bible is trying to tell us something else, too? Two cities wiped from the face of the earth in a massive blast, an onlooker reduced to salt or ash, maybe the people in these ancient stories weren't smited by God's fury alone. Perhaps there's a secular, historical interpretation, too. Other ancient writings tell of Sumerian cities that, around that same time, fell to what they called an evil wind, the sudden death of crops, poisoning of water, all of the symptoms of nuclear fallout. But what could have caused such an atomic blast in ancient times? Humans didn't have that power, but perhaps ancient aliens did. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial, a ParCast original. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Today, we're continuing our discussion on the Anunnaki, ancient extraterrestrial astronauts who supposedly came to Earth, created humanity, and then absconded. The only record of the Anunnaki left was the knowledge they passed on to us. That is, if you believe author Zachariah Sitchin's version of events. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Last episode, we dug into author Zachariah Sitchin's 1976 book, The Twelfth Planet, a reinterpretation of ancient Sumerian texts. 
Most significantly, he proposed an alternate translation of the word Shem. Where scholars had often assumed this meant temple, Sitchin had other ideas. He said it meant rocket ship. From here, he laid out an entire story of the creation of humanity by ancient aliens, drawing from Sumerian myths and taking their fantastical details at face value. The result was an astonishing tale. Ancient aliens, known as the Nephilim, lived on the planet Nibiru, the 12th planet of our solar system. They came to Earth to mine the planet for precious metals. In need of miners to do the digging, Anu's son, Enki, began to experiment with DNA. Eventually, by mixing alien genes with primitive Earth apes, he invented the perfect species for hard work, human beings. But when the aliens began breeding with humans, the highest-ranking Nephilim were disgusted. They recalled their species back to Nibiru, leaving some of their scientific knowledge as a parting gift. That's where the 12th planet leaves things. With their home planet, Nibiru, on a 3,600-year orbit around the sun, the Nephilim aren't due back in our neck of the solar system anytime soon. From the start, Sitchin's theories were controversial. Critics dismissed them out of hand when the book was released in 1976. One early reviewer, Les Shaw, called it learned, well-researched, carefully documented piffle. Another, James Oberg, called it an astronomical flop. But the criticisms couldn't stop the momentum of the book or of Sitchin himself. Before long, he became a minor celebrity among proponents of the ancient astronaut theory. In the years following the 12th planet's release, Sitchin became a frequent attendee of conventions such as the Ancient Astronaut Society, which featured a lecture from Sitchin in 1978. Hard as it is to imagine, though, Sitchin wasn't even the first person to suggest that an alien race had created humanity. In the 60s and 70s, ancient astronauts were a growing field of study among conspiracy theorists, and Sitchin wasn't even the first to publish them in a book. Most of the credit for the theory's surge in popularity probably goes to Eric von Daniken, whose 1968 book, Chariots of the Gods, had put into the mainstream the notion of aliens coming to Earth and building the pyramids, Stonehenge, and other marvels of engineering throughout early civilization. The idea caught fire, and the book landed on the New York Times bestseller list. In 1970, it was adapted into a documentary film, by 1976, when The Twelfth Planet was released, audiences were primed to hear more about visitors from distant planets bringing their futuristic ways to primitive humanity. Where Sitchin innovated was in going all the way back to the ancient Sumerians and in using some of the earliest written texts to back up his claims. His knowledge of Sumerian and Assyrian writing and his ability to synthesize various religious tales into a mostly coherent creation story made his version seem especially plausible. Plus, his visual evidence was substantial and convincing. There were the carvings of strange, giant figures wearing helmets. Other ancient art showed pyramid-shaped ziggurats with what looked like antennae at their tips. And most importantly, a Sumerian picture of the solar system boasted 12 planets, not just eight. 
off the success of this first book and the gleeful reception at conventions and among the alien astronaut community, Zachariah Sitchin had to find a way to keep the momentum going. He'd already spelled out his theories in The Twelfth Planet. He was giving speaking tours, reiterating those theories and answering questions. But there was only one way he could think of to keep the ideas alive, growing, and spreading. He wrote another book. The Stairway to Heaven was released in 1980, and it packed in even more astounding revelations about Anunnaki society. It told how they influenced human evolution and revealed what happened to the Anunnaki after they left Earth. If it seems extremely convenient that Sitchin managed to uncover yet more details about the Anunnaki, enough that he could publish another book, it's worth remembering that he had plenty to work with in terms of sources. Thousands of years of religion and legend, in fact, which could easily be reinterpreted to connect to the Anunnaki. And his primary source, the Sumerian texts, provided more than enough material. 30,000 clay tablets could easily fill a series of books about the supposed true story of humankind's creation. But of course, the big question is whether his connections were rooted in legitimate archaeology and history, or if he was simply making tenuous links to fit his pre-existing theory. Sitchin's whole theory rests on the belief that all human mythology and religion stemmed from these alien visitors and the stories passed down about them. So anything from the Bible, the Quran, the Hindu Vedas, it was all relevant and could be connected. And that's exactly what Sitchin did. The Earth Chronicles, a series of seven volumes detailing all of Sitchin's discoveries from the tablets and other religions, was released in installments over the next 30 years. Each one expanded on the story of the Nephilim, the Anunnaki, and mankind's early days. In the second installment, Sitchin began to expand the story, bringing in other cultures besides ancient Sumeria, and involving disparate figures from world history. He started in ancient Egypt. According to Sitchin, the oldest gods of Egypt came to Earth from the so-called celestial disk. He describes it as a long cylindrical object with fire at its tail and lights at its head. These headlights could change color from blue to red. When pharaohs died, they would ascend the stairway to heaven and join the oldest gods at their home in the celestial disk. But for Sitchin, the stairway to heaven wasn't a metaphor for passing on to the next life. It was real. And how exactly did a real-life pharaoh use the stairway to heaven to ascend to the stars? It was easy. If we understand the stairway to be another name for... The launch pad for a rocket. For pharaohs headed to the next world, the path laid out in Egyptian lore eerily mirrored how an astronaut might make their way to a shuttle launch. Drawing from the Book of the Dead and from writings about Egyptian King Pepi I, Sitchin compared the journeys. Pepi departed by ferry from the land of Horus, what we call Egypt, and made his way into the land of Seth, the Duat. The Duat is described as the realm of the dead, or, as Sitchin conspicuously titled it, the abode for rising to the stars. 
the launch pad. It was here at the Duat that Pepe began to meet technicians, gods who prepared his vessel for final departure. They were the ones who provided flame and fire to the boat of Ra, the sun god. Another figure is described as the captain of the boat of the gods. Two more are described as those who order the course of the stars. Like technicians working on the Apollo missions, these figures moved hurriedly, wasting no time getting ready for the journey. Here, the pharaoh changed into a new outfit, one fit for a journey to the stars, a spacesuit. Then it happened. The king boarded the ship. Did the ancient writers who recorded this process mean ship as in boat or ship as in rocket ship? Whichever it was, it was propelled by what the text calls the smoke of the great exhalation, and it was headed upward toward the stars. But there's obviously no ancient spaceport in Egypt today, and Zechariah Sitchin knows why, because it was destroyed by the Anunnaki. Sitchin followed up the Stairway to Heaven with yet another sequel, 1985's The Wars of Gods and Men. By now, Sitchin's following was secure. He continued appearing at conventions and soon even began to lead expeditions. Called Sitchin Studies, these were tours of some of the archaeological sites described in his books. And the number of these sites was expanding with each new addition to the series. The third book centers on Mount Sinai and attempts to explain what happened to this spaceport and why the Anunnaki don't continue to visit Earth to this day. According to Sitchin, there's a simple answer for the disappearance of the spaceport, the aliens, and the ancient world as he describes it. Nuclear war. Up next, modern technology melds with ancient history. Now back to our story. In 1976, Zachariah Sitchin laid out his theory for how the alien race, known as the Anunnaki, settled Earth and created humanity in his book, The Twelfth Planet. A few years later, he followed that up with The Stairway to Heaven, which suggested that the Anunnaki built a giant spaceport in the Middle East. And to explain why there's no spaceport there today, Sitchin proposed that ancient nuclear war among the aliens had destroyed it. That's the subject of The Wars of Gods and Men, his third book published in 1985. The soil of the Sinai Peninsula is famously dry. The land is flat, the ground hard, and the dirt of the central plain is pitch black. Viewed from space, it almost looks burned. According to Sitchin, one should look to 2024 BC to find the answer for how it ended up this way. He said that at this time, the Anunnaki controlled the cities of the Middle East and frequently warred with one another. Eventually, an Anunnaki peace council was convened. But peace talks quickly turned to further Anunnaki infighting. Marduk, the one-time wild child of the Anunnaki, had been conquering city after city across the region. But his father, Anki, defended him. An argument broke out, and one of the aliens, Era, stormed out, declaring his intention to use the ultimate weapon of the Anunnaki. 
nuclear warheads. Era was supported by Enlil, whose city Marduk had sacked, and even Anu, their great leader, approved of the use of this ultimate weapon. The text reads, quote, At the Mount Most Supreme, the hero arrived. He raised his hand. The mount was smashed. The Mount Most Supreme was Mount Sinai, says Sitchin, where the spaceport lay. Then Era moved on to Sodom and Gomorrah. The story goes, quote, The cities he finished off. To desolation he overturned them. The infamous deed was done. The cities of the plain and the spaceport between them were obliterated. The fallout from the blast in modern-day Saudi Arabia was felt as far away as Sumeria, almost a thousand miles away. Verses from ancient poems describe the sudden desolation of Sumerian communities in the 21st century BCE, right around the time of the bomb, says Sitchin. One excerpt reads, quote, causing cities to be desolated, houses to become desolate, its rivers flow with water that is bitter, its cultivated fields grow weeds. Could it be a coincidence that at the same time the biblical Sodom and Gomorrah fell, Sumerian villages were brought to their knees by an unknown malady? What makes Sitchin's theories especially compelling is that scientific advancements often came along to support them. In the years following the publication of his first book, Zachariah Sitchin kept a close watch on developments in astronomical and scientific circles, often seizing on them as evidence of the claims he made in his books. In April 2000, for example, a paper published by the magazine Geology attempted to explain the fall of the Akkadian Empire. By analyzing nearby ocean basins, Researchers found that the region had taken a sharp, inexplicable turn for the dusty and arid about 4,025 years ago. The result was drought and famine. Whole cities were abandoned. Sitchin did the math. Writing in 2001, he subtracted 4,025 years, and he found that brought him to 2024 BCE. That's the exact year Sitchin had already said the nuclear bomb went off. Could it be that the sudden shift in weather was actually caused by the nuclear bomb he believed he'd uncovered in ancient writings? If it was, the scientists whose research was covered in the magazine Geology didn't make such a link. But the paper declined to speculate about what did cause this climate change. Throughout his writing career, Sitchin continued to weigh in on scientific findings that might connect to his theories. In 1996, the world was taken with a rare visit from an ancient satellite, the Hale-Bopp Comet. Here's astronomer Richard Berenson on the approaching comet. The comet is now approaching the sun quite rapidly. It'll soon be going 100,000 miles per hour. And uh, it's an old ancient ancestor of ours, really. It's made of the same water and carbon that we ourselves are. Named for its discoverers, Alan Hale and Thomas Bopp, the Hale-Bopp comet made waves with its extraordinarily bright body and unusually long orbital period. Hale-Bopp only passes by the Earth every 2,530 years, though its visits are long. 
In the 90s, it was visible to the naked eye for a year and a half. Its closest passing was on March 22, 1997. It was a marvelous sight. In an article from 1997, Sitchin claims that he was besieged with phone calls surrounding the appearance of Hale-Bopp. Concerned fans and fellow theorists were desperate to know, was this Nibiru, the home planet of the Anunnaki and Nephilim? Nibiru, you'll remember, had an extraordinarily long orbital cycle, 3,600 years according to Sitchin. But Sitchin disagreed. This was a comet, not a planet, and certainly not Nibiru. Perhaps he simply realized that his claims wouldn't hold up if the comet came and went with no word from the Anunnaki. Or maybe, contrary to his usual willingness to make huge leaps, Sitchin recognized that turning a planet into a comet stretched the limits of believability, even for his readers. At that same time, the discovery of a planetary body, dubbed 1996 TL-66, also fed fuel to the fire. This latter body was not a comet, making it a better fit for Nibiru, according to Sitchin. But it was too small for astronomers to consider it a true planet. Again, Sitchin was inundated with questions. Could 1996 TL-66 be Nibiru? And again, Sitchin said no. He said that Nibiru was three or four times the Earth's size, much larger than 1996 TL-66 was supposed to be. But he seized on both Hale-Bopp and 1996 TL-66 as proof of the gigantic orbital periods that can characterize a satellite's journey through the solar system. Hale-Bopp was only discovered a year or so before it became visible in the sky. If Nibiru really does travel along the gigantic path Sitchin said it does, it's entirely plausible that it's simply too distant for human devices to detect. And that means it may still be out there, ready to return when we least expect it. While Sitchin's fans were eager to confirm his theories, he had his skeptics as well, such as Dr. Michael Heiser. Dr. Heiser holds a PhD in ancient Semitic languages. In the mid-2000s, he began analyzing the work of Zechariah Sitchin. Immediately, he found the translations suspect. In his first book, Sitchin claims that the word Anunnaki literally translates to people of the fiery rockets. That sounds like an inarguable point in favor of ancient alien astronauts. But Heiser breaks down the word and shows that it actually means princely seed, that is, offspring of the prince, presumably Anu. There's simply no plausible reason to read the word the way Sitchin does. None of the word's components resemble his claims. The only explanations are an innocent misunderstanding or an intentional deception. Another core pillar of Sitchin's argument is SEAL VA-243, which we discussed in part one. It supposedly shows the sun above the heads of several Anunnaki, a sun surrounded by 12 planets. Surely this indicates that ancient people had observed celestial bodies that we still don't know about. Or maybe not. 
Heiser points out that the piece of the carving that Sitchin interprets as the sun doesn't align with how the sun is depicted in any other Sumerian carving. In all likelihood, what looks in the carving like the sun was, in fact, just a depiction of a star. The dots surrounding it represented other stars. The largest star, the one that looks like a sun, was merely depicted that way to emphasize it in the picture. Likely, it was a star connected to the ritual being shown in the carving, a star the Sumerians associated with agriculture, for example. Clearly, a slightly deeper look into Sitchin's claims suggests that, at best, he made huge assumptions and misinterpretations in order to craft his theory about the Anunnaki. Zachariah Sitchin never commented on these objections. In fact, he seems deliberately to have avoided doing so. Heiser was a frequent guest on Coast to Coast AM, the same program on which Sitchin peddled his theories. But though Heiser frequently requested a debate between the two, Sitchin never responded. This, despite his eager attitude toward answering the questions of fans wondering about Halebop and other planets. Sitchin didn't let the criticism stop him, though. His output was prodigious. He wrote four more books in the main Earth Chronicles series and a number of compendiums, side projects, and more to illuminate the history of the Anunnaki. But as we've already seen with the second and third installments, each new book brought with it gigantic revelations that seemed improbably tacked onto the existing mythologies. Where the 12th planet declared that the Anunnaki had left Earth following the Flood, for example, the sequels conveniently find that they returned shortly thereafter and continued as if nothing had happened. And later books give the Anunnaki credit for everything from Stonehenge to South American civilizations. In January 2010, a New York Times reporter wrote a profile of Sitchin. At that time, he was living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, 89 years old with 13 books to his name, and still insisting to the last that the ancient gods of the Sumerians were aliens from the planet Nibiru. Sitchin died peacefully in October of 2010. Even since his death, though, his theories have been widely promulgated. And in 2015, scientists made a huge discovery, one that might just prove Zachariah Sitchin correct after all. Another planet in the solar system, just like Sitchin predicted, a planet that perfectly fit the description of Nibiru. Next, we'll discover whether scientists may have finally found Nibiru. Now, back to our story. Author Zachariah Sitchin continued to release books throughout the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. With every new installment came a new revelation about the Anunnaki. But he wasn't just writing. He was reading, too constantly keeping up on the newest scientific developments right up until his death in 2010. Each new discovery could be folded into his theory of the Anunnaki, it seemed. Every passing comet and astronomical phenomenon aligned with something the ancient Sumerians had described on a clay tablet 4,000 years ago. As we've already seen, a lot of these connections were tenuous at best. 
The existence of long orbital paths for celestial objects alone is not proof that Nibiru exists. But other findings after the author's death were more compelling in hinting at a possible truth behind his writings. Findings like Planet X. In January 2015, two astronomers at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena made a startling announcement. They had uncovered evidence of a new planet in the solar system. They hadn't seen the planet through a telescope or any advanced detection technology. Rather, they'd simply done the math. The scientists looked at the paths of celestial bodies like dwarf planets and icy objects, things they could follow. In attempting to account for the specific and sometimes strange orbital paths of one dwarf planet in particular, the astronomers were baffled. Its path simply didn't make sense, not with the gravitational influence of the objects they were aware of anyway. They decided that the most likely explanation was that another extremely large planet, one outside range of detection, must have been affecting its orbit. Planet X, so they called it. Thus began a search for this massive, potential new planet, a search that continues to this day. But fans of Sitchin's work pounced, declaring Planet X to be a likely candidate for Nibiru. Whether Sitchin would agree is another matter. Since he died five years before the planet's discovery, his thoughts remain a matter of pure speculation. But unlike Hale-Bopp and 1996 TL-66, Planet X is genuinely believed to be a planet, and a big one at that. The reasons Sitchin had for dismissing those other objects simply don't apply to Planet X. And so, the possibility remains that, before long, we'll see the return of Nibiru and the Anunnaki. A return that, if Sitchin's theories are true, brings with it major upheaval. Catastrophic floods, nuclear disaster, everything's on the table. In verifying or debunking Sitchin's claims, the best place to start seems to be the 12th planet. That's where the most fundamental ideas about this theory are laid out. By examining these, we can evaluate Sitchin's theories on the scale of believability from 1 to 10, with 10 being extremely likely. The first book is, of course, where we learn about Nibiru, the titular 12th planet. And it's the one that Sitchin most directly ties to actual Sumerian texts and ancient carvings. The later materials often require huge leaps. But even in that first book, there's plenty of reason to be skeptical. As we heard from Dr. Michael Heiser, much of Sitchin's Sumerian translation simply doesn't track with what scholars know about the language. And Sumerian understanding of astronomy was probably weaker than Sitchin claims. In fact, Sumerian writings affirm again and again that ancient Sumerians knew of only the five closest planets in the solar system, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. As for Nibiru, the name Sitchin gives to the supposed 12th planet, Sitchin isn't wrong that the texts sometimes use the word Nibiru to refer to a planet, but that planet isn't one beyond Pluto. Usually it refers to Jupiter, 
Sometimes it's also used to refer to the god Marduk, who the Sumerians associated with Jupiter. At no point in the texts is Nibiru referred to as a 12th planet, as the home of the Anunnaki, or as a planet with a 3,600-year orbital path. The fact that astronomical objects can have massive and long orbital paths is not exactly rock-solid evidence that alien gold miners landed on Earth. And even more intriguing findings, like the climate shifts within the Sinai Peninsula, can just as easily be attributed to the kinds of sudden droughts and desertification that plague the region to this day. One would expect a nuclear bomb to leave a little more evidence than some charred soil and a dry strip of land. But that characterizes Sitchin's approach to the mythology in general, stretching the existing evidence to its breaking point and ignoring what evidence disagrees with his claim. It's an unfortunate tendency, especially in light of what reviewer James Oberg pointed out about much of the Twelfth Planet. He wrote in 1978, Sitchin's grasp of Near Eastern archaeology is excellent. I would recommend them to anyone interested in a survey of that field. But that section of the book lasts only about 100 pages. And in so frequently flipping between accurate descriptions of archaeology and his own less reliable versions of Sumerian history and culture, Sitchin only further muddies the waters and discredits his own theories. Still, the theories were undeniably influential. Legions of fans continue to learn about, discuss, and propagate Zachariah Sitchin's ideas about the Anunnaki and the Nephilim. To this day, his niece, Janet Sitchin, is the webmaster of Sitchin's official website, answering questions and providing updates on his theories. In 2015, she edited a book of previously unpublished writings by her uncle, condensing his work into a single volume and allowing it to spread even further. But the theories didn't need another book to make their mark. Hollywood had long ago taken the basic tenets of Sitchin's ideas and used them for a number of films. The original Stargate movie from 1994 drew considerable portions of its mythology from the Anunnaki legend in particular, the idea of ancient aliens using humans as laborers to mine for precious metals. It also connects these aliens to the pyramids of Egypt, though that theory isn't original to Sitchin. And Roberto Orsi, the writer of the 2011 film Cowboys and Aliens, said the aliens of his film were loosely based on the Babylonian legend of the Anunnaki. If the spread of his ideas into science fiction, film, and literature is any indication, Sitchin would have made quite the successful sci-fi writer. His inventive narratives and massive, millennia-spanning mythology is clearly the work of a strong imagination. But by publishing his supposed findings as nonfiction, Sitchin opens himself up to scrutiny that reveals how his work, either through misunderstanding or outright deception, repeatedly misrepresents the actual mythology and science of Sumerian culture. Ultimately, we must conclude that the consistent misreading of well-understood Sumerian mythology and the obvious stretches required to expand that first book into 12 sequels and spin-offs hurt the theory's credibility. However, there is something compelling to the way Sitchin connects distant world religions and mythologies. 
With no real way of knowing exactly what occurred in the distant past, we must leave open the possibility that some cosmic event might have inspired the mythologies of many different cultures throughout the millennia. But without stronger evidence, and with the contradictory and absurd nature of many of Sitchin's claims, that possibility is extremely remote. As a result, this theory earns a 2 out of 10 on the believability scale. Even if Zachariah Sitchin's increasingly outlandish claims provoke doubt, it's worth considering them in the context in which they were published. His supposed discoveries about the Anunnaki often corresponded to what was going on in the world around Sitchin, especially in the sciences, at the time of their writing. For example, the Anunnaki DNA experiments that Sitchin claims led to humankind's creation mirrored the same DNA experiments that American scientists were doing in the 70s. Frederick Sanger invented a method for sequencing DNA in 1975, the year before Sitchin's book was published, a discovery that netted the scientist a Nobel Prize just a few years later. And Sitchin's third book, focused as it was on a civilization's destruction by means of nuclear weapons, was released in 1985. These were the waning but still terrifying years of the Cold War's nuclear standoff between the United States and Russia. Even if they relied heavily on conjecture or outright fabrication, Sitchin's books were clearly exploring real fears and interests of his own time period. In that way, they might prove more useful as an insight into what was occupying the minds of Americans in the 1970s and 80s than as a historical document about ancient Sumerian aliens. As scientific progress continues to rapidly change the way we interact with the world around us, there's some comfort in the idea that maybe we've already figured this out once before. An increasingly complex world might find some solace knowing that ancient people had the answers to questions about space and the universe, about our origins, and about the deepest questions of our existence. And maybe if Sitchin's description of the 3,600-year path of the planet Nibiru is accurate, if the Anunnaki and the Nephilim will return as Sitchin predicts, Maybe we just need a little patience. Answers and aliens might just be on the way. Thanks for listening to our story on the Anunnaki. You can find all previous episodes of Extraterrestrial, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Extraterrestrial is written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. 